Our text from the Hebrew Bible for today is part of the continuing story of the decline and fall of Saul, Israel's first king, and the rise of Saul's successor, King David. At the end of the first book of Samuel, Saul and his son Jonathan are killed in battle and their bodies desecrated by the Philistines. The second book of Samuel opens with David's lament for the death of King Saul and his son Jonathan. In recent years, some biblical scholars have wondered about the nature of the relationship between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul, reading the text within the fresh eyes of our contemporary experience. One thing we know for sure Based on the deep grief of David, he loved Jonathan dearly. Reading from the second book of Samuel, the first chapter and the first verse, and then beginning with verse 17. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from defeating the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. David intoned this lamentation over Saul and his son Jonathan. He ordered that the song of the bow be taught to the people of Judah. It is written in the book of Jashar. David said, Your glory, O Israel, lies slain upon your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice. The daughters of the uncircumcised will exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor bounteous fields, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, anointed with oil no more. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, nor the sword of Saul return empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothed you with crimson in luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain upon your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Greatly beloved were you to me. Your love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. And from the New Testament, from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, reading from chapter 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. 
the word of the Lord. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The second book of Samuel opens with a moving account of David mourning over his friend Jonathan and his mentor Saul. David, the poet, is at his best here in this sonnet of mourning and lament that he writes. You remember that David was not only a musician, but he was a poet, he was a warrior, he was a king. And upon learning of the deaths of his mentor Saul and his dear friend Jonathan, he writes of his grief. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Greatly beloved were you to me. Your love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen. Well, so much for our usual cultural norm that men don't express their emotions and feelings. Our text from Mark is usually entitled The Rising of Jairus' Daughter. But the part of this little story that I am drawn to is the outpouring of uncontrollable grief in the story. An emotional expression so tragically typical at the death of a child. Of course, when it comes to expressing emotion, no one in the Bible expresses human emotion better than the psalmist. For example, a favorite text that is read in the memorial service, Psalm 130, expresses how we feel when we are weighed down by grief. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, Lord, hear my voice. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning, more than those who watch for the morning. I think our culture is of two minds when it comes to death and dying. On the one hand, the stages of grieving and dying are so well known. It's been nearly 50 years now since Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's groundbreaking and culture-changing book on death and dying introduced first the medical profession and then the general population to the dynamics of grieving, that when we lose a loved one or face our own deaths, we move from denial to anger to bargaining to depression and perhaps finally to acceptance. More recent books like Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal, continue to open up and change the conversation on aging and death. On the other hand, our society is a death-denying one. The media bombards us with ideals of youthful exuberance and beauty, success, triumph, and a cheerful lifestyle. If I took advantage of every personal care product that is advertised in a single evening, I think I would live to be 150 and I would look great 
until my last breath. When it comes to our own grieving, now that's a conversation we put off as long as we can, saying as little as we can. And the words that the grieving here most frequently are, I just don't know what to say. If they hear anything at all. Most of us struggle with our own grief and struggle even more with reaching out to someone else who is grieving. I remember a story my divinity school pastoral care professor Liston Mills told us in class. I wish I could tell it like he did, and believe me, you wish I could tell it like he did. As Professor Mills told it, when he was a young minister, he was called to do a funeral. It was way out in the country. He arrived at a little clapboard church. He entered to find a gathering waiting for him. The open casket held a man, his face hardened by years of farm labor. About that time, the widow stood up, began to wail and sway and jerk uncontrollably. And then she ran up to the casket, leaped into it, and began to kiss her dead husband and stroke his hair all the while screaming and crying beyond all measure and toleration. That Professor Mills advised us young ministers to be is an example of what is called morbid grief. Well, I've never experienced anything like that. But in my ministry, I do encounter a wide ranges of responses to death. And I've witnessed all manners of grieving. Some people struggle painfully when they grieve. Others are stoic and reserved, so much so that you you wonder what they're really feeling inside. Some people are comfortable expressing their emotions. Others are much more even painfully reserved. In an exasperating moment, old Charlie Brown exclaims in the cartoon script, Good grief. But for most people, good and grief don't go together. The Apostle Paul wrote, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Is there such a thing as Christian grieving? Is there such a thing as good grief. Grieving is part of life. For persons of faith and persons of no faith alike, we grieve over losses, large and small, precious and casual. When we lose a ball game or a race or a job or get a bad grade, we grieve. When a friend hurts our feelings, or when we witness some terrible human tragedy, we grieve. When a husband or wife or mother or father or child dies, we grieve. When someone we love is diagnosed with a serious or life-threatening disease or illness, we grieve. When we are diagnosed with a limiting or potentially terminal illness, 
we grieve. With the psalmist, we cry out to God and demand answers to our questions and comforts for our grieving. When we grieve, each of us has to find his or her own way because there is no one right way to grieve. There is good grief, but there is no singular best grief. No prescribed way that you have to act or react. No pre-written script. There is no pattern of grieving that must be followed and no manner of grieving that is always forbidden. We are indebted to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross for illumining the dynamics of death and dying and grieving as including denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. But her insights can also be a burden if you hear the stages of grieving as stating you have to do it this way. You have to go from step A to B to C to D. It doesn't work that way for many of us. There is no right and wrong way to grieve. It is okay to cry out with the psalmist words of anguish and doubt. There is no one right way to grieve. Now, there are some warning signs that your grief may be dragging you under. These signs include lethargy, agitation, an inability to make decisions, a feeling of spiritual numbness or a a feeling of no feeling at all, anger, social withdrawal. Such warning signs call us to be more intentional in our attention to our feelings, ourselves, our losses. Such signs tell us that Maybe it's time to seek out pastoral or professional help. Give one of your pastors a call. Even as there are warning signs of grief gone badly, there are also patterns of good grief. Steps which facilitate our own grieving, the process of grieving, places of rest on a weary journal, journey, safe harbors into a swirling storm, cool waters to restore the soul, a comforting rod and a strong, sure staff. The resources for grieving include the comfort of the scriptures. I traditionally begin a memorial service with the words, now having gathered to confess our faith and to hear the comfort of the scriptures. Or as Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, I would not have you be ignorant regarding those who have died. The Bible is a source of comfort and affirmation. No matter how you feel or what you need, for it is all there. Comfort, encouragement, anger, fear, doubt, sadness, despair, recovery, promise, hope. And faith. There is also the comfort of family and close friends. One tendency 
when we grieve is to pull back from those whom we love. Another tendency is for us to shy away from those persons who are grieving, even a close friend or a family member. It can be painful. But the loving support and comfort of family and friends is a most precious treasure. But not all of us have family nearby or available close friends. The mobility of our society is a major source of our grieving and a complication at death. Which is why the comfort of the faith community is priceless. In the church, we are extended family of one another. We are the brothers and sisters Paul does not want to be ignorant about death or to grieve as others do who have no hope. The church may be the last sanctuary where it is okay to cry, to feel sad, and to show our sadness. In the faith community, the distinction between griever and non-griever breaks down. Here we are all grievers, and here we all live in the light of the hope of dwelling in the house of the Lord our whole lives long. I think one of the great stumbling blocks that a loss puts down for us is fear. Fear that if we dare to love again, we will only lose another loved one. Fear that if we trust someone again, we will only be disappointed again. Fear that if I express how I feel, I might not be accepted. Fear that if I reach out to you, I might be rejected. The tragic result is out of fear, we tend to separate ourselves from the very strength we need in time of crisis or loss. Scripture, family, friends, the community of the church, God. Now, this is not to say that faith insulates us from the ravages of loss. Faith does not shield us from loss. Faith does not solve everything. Life does not simply go on after a loss. After the death of a loved one, after any profound loss, we are different than we were before. Life does not simply pick up where it left off as if nothing had happened. Faith does not guarantee happy endings. Faith is the power by which life does go on, even after a loss. Faith says you can live again. You can love again because in Jesus Christ, God implants within us a living hope that conquers even the power death holds over us. In his classic little book, Good grief. Granger Westberg lifts up Paul's advice to the Thessalonians as a key 
to good grief. Paul writes, we do not grieve as others who have no hope. It is not that as Christians we do not grieve. It is not that we grieve differently than other people. We grieve, but we grieve not as others who have no hope, for we have hope. We have the hope of the gospel, the life-sustaining power of the hope given to us in Jesus Christ, the hope of the scriptures, the hope we touch and feel through our family and friends and the Christian community. And we find that hope here among God's people gathered for worship and prayer, service and fellowship. For here, all of God's people, all of the saints living and dead, all of the saints of the past, present and future are gathered in one holy communion with one another and with our God. Here we bring our grief our sorrows, our sins, our disappointments. Here we bring ourselves, and here our Creator recreates our lives and pronounces us good, very good. Dear friends, do not grieve as others do who have no hope, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, through Jesus, God will bring into everlasting communion those who have died. Hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with God is great power to redeem. Therefore, let us encourage one another with these words. In the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.